Hello, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Advent series in the Gospel of Luke. Here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers will be looking at the Annunciation of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Along the way, they'll discuss the political dimensions of Advent, the songs at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, how Protestants are often nervous about the typology surrounding Mary, and they'll look at why a virgin birth was necessary. We also wanted to remind you that if you sign up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race, you'll receive a free copy of a new ebook from Peter Lightheart on Pado Communion, the Church, and the Gospel that we think you'll enjoy. So if you want to sign up for that newsletter and receive a weekly note from Peter Lightheart and updates on all of our work, you can sign up at the link in the show notes. With that, we hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by this discussion over this passage. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the Annunciation of Jesus in Luke chapter 1. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alastair Roberts. And Brian Motes is available here, making sure that we stay on cue. Uh, we began a series a couple of weeks ago in the early chapters of Luke. We're looking at the uh, first two chapters of Luke during the Advent, uh, leading up to the Advent season, in the Advent season, and then uh, past the Advent season, the first couple of weeks after Christmas. And uh, this week, we're entering into the Advent season, the season which we commemorate the coming of the Lord. Advent, of course, means arrival or coming. And uh, these passages are about the arrival of the Lord in the flesh, in the birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. And the church has traditionally celebrated four weeks of preparation for that feast day of Christmas, uh, in which we reflect on the Lord's coming, uh, his promise to come. In the Old Testament, uh, the uh, fulfillment of that promise in the gospel story, the various ways that God comes throughout history, and his final coming to judge the living and the dead and to bring in the final consummated new creation. Uh, All of those different aspects of the Lord's coming are part of the celebration, part of our meditation during the Advent season. But our focus uh, in these podcasts is going to be on the early chapters of Luke that uh, tell the story, Luke's version of the story of the birth of Jesus. And one of the things that's uh, always stood out to me in these passages is the prominence, well, the prominence of the Spirit, which we mentioned in an earlier podcast, but also the prominence of song. And those two things, I think, go together. Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit and to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So there's a link between the coming of the Spirit and the, uh, the joy that we express in song, the joy that we come to and and enhance by singing, but uh, virtually every section of this uh, of this story from here on out is going to have a prominent song attached to it. Today, we're looking at the Annunciation to Jesus, which climaxes with Mary's visit to Elizabeth and the song we know as the Magnificat. Next week, we'll look at uh, the birth of John, and that that story ends with Zechariah singing. Uh, what we know as the Benedictus, a song of blessing and praise. Uh, When the angels come, they sing uh, to the shepherds. When Jesus is presented in the temple, uh, Simeon sings uh, what's now called the Nunc Dimittis, 
Uh, many of the liturgical hymns that we use in the church come out from come out of these chapters. But when the Spirit comes and when the Lord comes, the Lord's coming provokes song. This is like a small-scale New Testament psalter right here at the beginning of the, uh, the Gospel of Luke. And if, if I could just make one other comment about that before you all chime in. Um, one of the one of the things that strikes me about those songs is how uh, rooted they are in Old Testament patterns of song and psalmody and how much they focus on the Lord's dealings with Israel, the covenant that he made with Abraham, the fulfillment of that covenant, uh, the, prom- the, the coming of the promised Davidic king. And they have to do with the Lord's fulfillment of these promises within the history of the nations uh, through the fulfillment of promises to Israel, uh, which I think is a very different atmosphere than we often get in our uh, Christmas carols and Christmas hymns, which are often often sentimentalized, often focused on individual salvation, which I'm not disparaging, just pointing out the contrast between the the large-scale political kind of context that Mary is singing about and that uh, Zechariah is singing about, and uh, even uh, Simeon, Simeon's song is about the coming of the coming of the Lord to deliver his people. That political and historical dimension is very prominent in the songs in the, at the beginning of Luke. And Advent is about us remembering that God has been faithful to his promises. Uh, we read these stories and we see all the scripture uh, either directly cited or just alluded to in these songs. And we are supposed to now recognize that um, the promises that Jesus has made to us to come again to us in the Lord's Supper, in our lives, at the end of the world, um, are to be taken seriously. And even though we patiently wait for those comings of Jesus, they waited for generations. This is the, uh, uh, the most anticipated announcement in the history of the world that Gabriel comes and brings to Mary. Uh, but they waited. They were patient. Um, and these faithful men and women uh, are models for us as well. There are a number of um, Old Testament stories that are kind of coalesced here. Uh, we mentioned in the, one of the last uh, episodes of the podcast, the appearance of Gabriel takes us back into Daniel, where Daniel uh, receives promises and prophecies and visions through Gabriel. And now Gabriel is coming in order to announce the fulfillment. There's a strong emphasis on Mary as the mother of a uh, of a royal descendant of David. He's going to be the seed of David. Uh, she's of the house of David, and he's going to have uh, his father's throne, his father David's throne. His kingdom is going to last forever. He's going to be called the son of God, which is a royal title in the Old Testament. Uh, and recurring throughout this is a, is a typological connection with the early chapters of Samuel. Uh, that would be connected with the Davidic theme. Samuel's birth is the the tiny beginning of a renewal that leads to the establishment of the monarchy and the, the anointing of David and the establishment of the Davidic house. Um, but there's a uh, there are a number of very direct allusions to this early chapters of Samuel and the birth of Samuel. Uh, Mary's song, the Magnificat, resembles Hannah's song's song very closely. We're told a couple of times in these chapters that children, John and Jesus, are growing. Uh, in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man, which is an allusion back to the early chapters of Samuel, where it's describing Samuel's work and ministry in his youth. Just in the way the story is written, we have this this nexus of Old Testament allusions that are 
being brought to fulfillment here. We not only have the the general theme at the end of Luke that everything is fulfilled in Christ, as Jesus himself teaches at the end of Luke, but we also see that the that Luke is writing the story in a way that indicates that these events are the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies and, and types. Beginning of first Samuel, we have the promise of Samuel's birth. Samuel is going to be the one who prepares the way for the kingdom. And in the beginning of Luke, in some ways, it's as if we have the story of Samuel refracted into both the um, prophet that will announce and establish the kingdom, and then also the one who will be the great Davidic king. And there are themes connected with Hannah and with Samuel that are attached to John the Baptist, but then also to Jesus as well. And the relationship between those two characters might draw our mind back to a number of Old Testament pairings from um, Samuel and David to um, Moses and Joshua with Jesus being a new Joshua and Elijah and Elisha with John the Baptist described as Elijah, the Elijah that was to come and Christ as Elisha. In those stories then, I think there's a fairly rich background for understanding, as it were, the shoes into which um, these characters are stepping and how they are going to fulfill and um, complete roles that were anticipated within the Old Testament itself. There's also a contrast to be observed in the two Annunciation stories that are put back to back, one that's met with unbelief or um, disbelief, and then the other, which is an account of a faithful response. In both cases, there's a visitation from Gabriel. And in both cases, there are similar responses that have similarities. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And... um, how shall this be since I am a virgin? And so I think we're invited to hold these things alongside each other and to reflect upon both the similarities and the connections between the two stories, but also the differences in the responses of the characters. I think the, uh, another, uh, another Old Testament paradigm that's operative here, Samuel's coming right at the end of this period of the judges. And I think you have a couple of hints that Mary is fitting into that the story of the judges. When when Gabriel first greets her, hail favored one, the Lord is with you. Uh, that's very similar to what uh, the angel of the Lord says to Gideon when he first greets him. Gideon, of course, is going to be the deliverer for Israel. He's skeptical that he's going to be the deliverer and he's He's threshing in a uh, in a wine press, so he's uh, he's hiding food from the uh, is the I don't remember the Midianites in that case I think, uh, but there's a greeting that resembles the greeting to uh, to uh, Gideon, and then later she is described as the Elizabeth describes her as uh, blessed among women are you blessed is the fruit of your womb. So there's uh, there's this blessing on uh, the woman which uh, is linked up with the story of jail. Mary is a new jail. Jael is the woman in uh, Judges who pounds the tent peg through the head of Sisera, one of the uh, massive head wounds in the book of Judges and in the Old Testament. Mary's the one who fulfills that because uh, she's going to she's not going to uh, she's not going to to kill an actual enemy of Israel, pound a tent peg through the head of uh, of some Roman general or uh, play the role of Judas who tricks Holofernes of coming into her tent and then cuts off his head. 
Mary doesn't have that role, but she's doing something greater because she's giving birth to the uh, child of the, the, the uh, seed of the woman who is going to crush the serpent's head. Jesus is going to be the one not just to crush the head of the human enemies of Israel, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent himself and gain the victory over Satan and over the forces of evil in the world. So you have those, you have those judges delusion along with the, the other things we've been talking about. Yeah, uh, Mary is the woman that all Israelite women in the old world hoped they would be. The mother of the serpent head crushing seed is promised to Adam and Eve all the way back, as you said, to Genesis 3. This, uh, in, in the Magnificat, uh, the quotations and allusions to the Hebrew scriptures are, I mean, it's, it's stunning uh, how thoroughly steeped Mary is in, in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, and it's a collage of biblical texts. I mean, Moses in Exodus 15, Miriam in Exodus 15, Deborah, and of course, Hannah, as you just mentioned, and birth of, um, of Samuel. Uh, but she understands. It's, it's amazing. This young girl understands what is happening now to her is, uh, is continuous with the story of her people all the way back through Samuel uh, through the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, to the birth of Isaac, to Abraham, uh, even back to Adam. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty astonishing. When I uh, worked on working on my commentary on Revelation, I took the laboring woman in the sky in Revelation 12 as an image of Israel. I think there's an, an allusion to Mary. Mary is a culmination of the story of Israel. Uh, and if that's right, then what you have is a, is a, a symbol there of Israel's entire history as being a, a kind of birth story. Israel's entire purpose is to labor and travail so that she gives birth to the Messiah. And Mary is the one who brings that, that history. And often it is a history of actual birth. It's a history of barren women who are giving birth. Sarah and uh, Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah, Samson's mother, all these, a, a string of uh, barren women who give birth that call, come to culmination in Elizabeth and Mary. But in some way, the whole history is the whole history of Israel is seen from that angle. It's a it's a birth story. Their their suffering and travail is designed to be forming in them the Christ who's going to be born through Mary. And it's worth connecting that also with the way that Luke and other gospel writers such as John frame their narratives to parallel the events of the nativity with the events of the death and resurrection of Christ. John presents that in terms of a woman struggling to give birth and the pain and the suffering involved in that, but then the joy that a man is born into the world. And in Luke, there are linguistic and um, structural parallels between the beginning and the end. There are um, There is a Mary and a Joseph at the beginning. There are Marys and a Joseph at the end. There's a uh, wrapping in swaddling clothes, laying in the manger, wrapping in linen garments, laying in the tomb. And here, I think we have the sixth month and then Christ in the sixth hour, um, there is darkness over the land. There's crying with a loud voice. There's three hours passing um, and three months passing with the stay with Elizabeth. And there are a number of other ways in which I think we're supposed to connect these two events, the 40 days before the presentation in the temple, the 40 days prior to the ascension. And 
this great event of national birth, the birth of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah as well, his rebirth from the dead, those are um, structured by the deep story of Israel. And here I think it's important to consider the way that this understanding of the typological importance of the character of Mary differs from maybe a Roman Catholic understanding where the whole weight of that symbolism rests upon Mary as an individual, whereas within, um, I think, the scriptural presentation, that symbolism is expressed in her, but it's not finely um, and completely dependent upon her. It's something that's bigger. It's relating to Israel. It's relating to Rachel. It's relating to Sarah. It's relating to Jael and um, Hannah and all these other characters that fill the great array of the heroines of Israel's history. And Mary is one of those characters who expresses in a particularly profound form um, the destiny of the entire nation. But she's not um, one that sucks up all of that symbolism and concentrates it on herself to the exclusion of the others or to the eclipsing of the others. Yeah, I think that there'd be, certainly be Catholics who would recognize those typological dimensions of Mary and also want to develop a kind of Marian ecclesiology that Mary is not just an individual having a, an exalted status, but she in some way is linked up with the character of the church. But yeah, I think that that is, a, I say that just as qualification, not to not to disagree, because I do think that the the tendency is to read Mary as, as an individual rather than as an ecclesial type. So uh, I've heard Roman Catholics talk, for example, about the elevation of uh, Bathsheba to kind of a queen mother position by Solomon. And that's a type uh, of the elevation and the enthronement of Mary by the greater Solomon Jesus. And I think we want to see the typology there, but the typology, I think, works where the woman who's elevated as queen mother is the woman, the, the corporate woman who gave birth to, to Jesus, which is, uh, which is Israel, the new Israel, the church. So, yeah, I think, I think you're right that, there's that there's a, there is an individual focus in uh, Catholic thinking that, that, uh, I don't, that doesn't necessarily miss the, typo, uh, the, the corporate typology, but I think it, it sometimes trumps the corporate typology, which is more important. I think on the other side, there's often a Protestant nervousness about noticing just the wealth of typology that is surrounding Mary and these other characters at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, in part because they're concerned that if you acknowledge its presence, you will be granting the, the legitimacy of the claims that Roman Catholics make concerning her. You mentioned, for instance, um, a Marian ecclesiology, and it seems appropriate to me that we should have some sort of recognition of the connection between Mary and the church, the spirit of the Lord um, overshadowing her or coming upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. It is an anticipation of what will happen at Pentecost. It's something that recalls maybe the events of the original creation with the spirit um, hovering over the surface of the waters or maybe even um, the story of Noah and the flood with the dove. But recognizing that is very important for understanding what Luke is doing, for understanding the significance of the typology of this event. But it does not entail some of the conclusions that I think um, Catholics work to. So drawing a careful line between those two ditches, I think, is important. 
Uh, one of the typologies that I've heard from Roman Catholics has to do with the overshadowing spirit, and it's been linked up with the ark. So the, the spirit or glory of God comes and overshadows the ark and consecrates the most holy place. And then the uh, and, uh, uh, and Scott Hahn has made this argument. Then you extend that into the scene where Mary comes into Mary's uh, Elizabeth's home and John leaps for joy at the presence of the Lord. Uh, and the connection with David dancing before the ark. And I think all that works. Ma- Mary is uh, a uh, a vessel carrying the glory of God within her and giving birth in in a uh, an unimaginable way, having uh, bearing bearing the glory of God in a, in a literally uh, in a unimaginably literal way. But then the conclusion that drawn from that, therefore, Mary's womb would have been inviolable because it's a holy place, and Joseph would have been, committing a kind of sacrilege to have sex with his wife after Jesus was born. That's a, uh, a conclusion that goes beyond what the typology indicates. But I think the typology is there. That would be another example of, uh, as you were saying, Alistair, of Protestants don't need to be shy about recognizing the, the truly exalted status that Mary has uh, in redemptive history and uh, see her truly as a, a fulfillment of various Old Testament types. A fulfillment and an example. Um, her faithfulness is clearly exemplary. This is a good segue, your last comment, Peter, about the uh, Roman Catholic perpetual virginity of Mary idea. Uh, every, and we're gonna, I'm just going to move this a bit from biblical theology and typology to more systematic theological concerns or, or a Christology. Everybody always asks the question, well, why a virgin birth? Why was a virgin birth necessary or was it necessary? And, you know, sometimes the answer that's given is because the act of sexual intercourse uh, is avoided and therefore the taint of sin is avoided um, so that Jesus is born sinless or possibly that the sin nature quote unquote, is passed on through the father. And so the father is um, marginalized here in the process. Uh, But those answers really don't get to the heart of uh, the issue here. And so I'll just throw this question out. I know you guys know the answer, um, but I'll stop talking. What, why a virgin birth? A virgin birth, among other things, I think suggests a new creation that Christ is a new Adam. He's not just someone who's continuing the existing line. Um, There's also the fact that throughout the Old Testament and into the New, the emphasis upon the the man's agency in initiating sexual relations, in establishing through virility um, God's kingdom, that that is resisted. And so whether in circumcision or in the virgin birth, I think we're seeing something about something of a denial of man's power to initiate um, God's kingdom. Rather, it will be a gift of God that's performed by his strength and must be received um, in a way that is not characterized by man's virility, man's strength, man's agency, but actually humbles man, and man must receive it in a way that's... um, recognizes that God is the one who brings this about. Um, so I'd say those were the first, would be the first two things that I would highlight. Yeah, and I'd, I agree the 
the uh, point you're making at the end there, Alistair, that this is uh, this is God's intervention. It's it's His visitation. It's not just a superhuman character from within the normal process of procreation across the generations, but this is a unique intervention from God. That God Himself comes, and I, I was going to bring this up too. That uh, Kevin Rowe, in his recent work on Luke and Acts, has emphasized uh, the Trinitarian dimensions of the early chapters of Luke, uh, and takes the Lord throughout as a uh, in the strongest sense. So when uh, Elizabeth says, "The mother of my Lord has come," who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? He takes that as uh, this is the mother of. Yahweh in flesh. There is. Um, could Elizabeth have articulated the Nicene Creed? No, but uh, or the Chalcedonian formula? No, but did she know that the Lord was coming in some mysterious way in the baby that Mary was bearing? And Rowe argues, I think, pretty convincingly that the answer is yes. Uh, so this is this is the Lord's intervention, not just that the Lord intervenes by. Giving a giving a woman a miraculous birth, but the Lord Himself is coming into our history. He's intervening and visiting His people in a way that uh, that is new, and uh, that's that's the uh, that's the uh, crux of Advent, crux of our salvation. Yeah, I think it's appropriate for us to reflect back on this story, even though, as you say, there's the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian formula is not you know explicitly laid out here. Mary wouldn't have, or Elizabeth wouldn't have understood that. Yet, we look back on the, re- uh, uh, knowing the rest of the New Testament epistles and and uh, other writings, and we see here uh, uh, that uh, the divine person of the Son is uniting himself in the womb of the Virgin Mary to her humanity. Joseph and Mary would have produced a new human person. This is a divine person coming into the world as a man. Um, enfleshed, uh, incarnate. Um, and it's, so it's, it, it, this is the way, if you will, to do it. Um, Jesus, or, or the Son, eternal Son, unites with the humanity of his mother and is born a divine person who shares our human nature. Underlining the significance of the Trinitarian elements of this, um, if it were just a normal human conception through sexual relations, it would not so emphasize the fact that this is the Son of God, that the Holy Spirit is the one by whom he is conceived, and he is the second person of the Trinity come in human flesh. And the true paternity of Christ, I think, is underlined in part by the virgin birth and the agency of the um God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Incarnation, I think, is really under, underlined within Luke's account. Yeah, and one, and one of the interesting things uh, uh, Thomas Wynandy has pointed out that we here and in other places in Luke, the, the Trinitarian structure, as it were, is different from where, what we're used to. We think of Father, Son, Spirit as the ordering of the Trinity, and the, the New Testament speaks in those terms. But here it's the Father... Uh, sending his son, but he sent his son through the spirit. The spirit is the agent by which the the son is incarnate, as Alistair was saying. So you have a you have a different uh, insight into the relations of the triune persons. And if we step back from that for just to make a broader point, uh, Advent is about the coming of the Lord. Advent is about 
the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises that have to do with the salvation of Israel and of the nations and the renovation and glorification of creation. But Advent is also and just as fundamentally about the revelation of God. What we have in these stories is uh, a particular revelation of who God is, of his character. We already have in the opening chapters of Luke, we already have the an unfolding of an unveiling of the triune life of God as uh, the Son of God comes into the world through the agency of the Spirit. Uh, and so Advent is, is a season, Advent and Christmas are seasons certainly to celebrate our salvation, but also seasons to celebrate God's revelation of himself, that we can come to know God because God has visited us. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.